this, I don't know if you uh, have such a thing, but I have certain spiritual chapters, which is really spiritual health checks um, to kind of jog me back and, and refocus. And this is one of my favorite chapters, chapter four. I'll read it all the way through. I don't know if Jonathan's going to do that, but uh, before you go to bed tonight, just to do that, it will bless you. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the first six verses. Treasures in jars of clay. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we recommend purity, understanding, patience, kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will bless this time together. And uh, Lord, manifest your word to each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John. Well, thank you again for your warm welcome. It's lovely to be here, and uh, I'm very much looking forward not only to these sessions, but hopefully meeting many of you, some I've met already uh, in the past, and uh, I enjoy fellowship over a cup of tea at the end, and thanks for the musical accompaniment. And, um, <laughs> um, and uh, also, I look forward to um, feedback and comments on these really important themes of first things first. So thank you very much for your kind welcome. Um, as we mentioned, uh, Margaret and I live in the city of Oxford, and quite often I have to travel into London. Um, if you know that part of the world, uh, the M40 uh, travels down uh, from north of Oxford, actually, into London. It's a very good motorway, and uh, you can go at a fair speed until you reach the, uh, the London Ring Road, the M25, the world's largest car park, as you know, and um, then suddenly all the traffic begins to slow down. And I was making this journey the other day into London with all of the commuters pouring in. It was about 8.30 in the morning. And uh, gradually we slowed down as we approached the M25. And um, as we did so, um, uh, we, we came to a complete stop. And I looked across to my left. Uh, there was a large field, and it was bounded by a fence and a graffiti artist had written a message on the fence to all of us commuting into London. And it said, why do I do this every day? <laughs> Seven words that he was asking all of the people driving into London. Why do I do this every day? Now, I think it's a really good question to ask in terms of our own Christian lives, our own convictions. Uh, what is it that motivates us? What are the things that really matter? What are the priorities for us at this point in the 21st century, in our families, in our churches, in our personal lives? What are the things that really matter? That's why I thought, well, let's look at a series of, uh, of, air, uh, of scripture passages which show us first things first. The things that really matter in our lives and in our churches. 
Um, as has already been mentioned, uh, I'll just put them up on the screen here um, with, with uh, uh, the sequence. This evening we're going to look at Christian service and the priorities that Paul gives here. Um, tomorrow morning, uh, first things first, actually Paul uses that. First of all, he says in 1 Timothy 2, what should we do? That's in uh, Christian worship in 1 Timothy 2. Then we'll look at uh, the foundations of what it means to continue to live in Christ, uh, to grow up in Christ in the Christian life. First things first in Christian fellowship on Monday is a challenging uh, section of the Bible about how we learn to live together across our differences. First things first in what it means to be a Christian community here in our churches, across the churches and around the globe. And finally we'll look at first things first in Christian growth with a great story in Nehemiah. Eight and the essential priority of God's word. So this evening we come to the passage, verses one to six. First things first in Christian service. Um, it is a lovely letter to Corinthians, and it's a very personal letter as Paul describes in a very transparent way the things that really matter to him in his Christian life. It's probably the most personal of his letters, which is why it's very moving to read it. He talks about the costs as well as the joys of serving God. If you know the letter, he was being criticised by a group of false teachers, false apostles in Corinth, and part of 2 Corinthians is his defence for his own ministry. Why is he doing what he is doing? What are the reasons behind his ministry? And so in these opening verses of chapter 4, we get a glimpse of what matters to him. First things first. And so I'm just going to put up the bullet points of what are the priorities for Paul, which I think are our priorities too. The things that really matter in our Christian life and service. And here's the first one. Knowing God's call. You'll notice how he begins in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. The first and the primary priority for Paul, the thing that really helped him to cope with all kinds of ups and downs, was the fact that God had called him. God had given him this ministry. You'll see how the verse puts it. Through God's mercy, we have this ministry. Um, it's the ministry of the new covenant, uh, which is spoken about in chapter 3. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 3, he made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And Paul saw his calling to proclaim the gospel as the most important thing about his life. God had laid his hand on Paul and given him the gospel to proclaim to others. He was an ambassador, as he says in chapter 5, the next chapter. God had called him. He'd been given this message. He'd been given this mandate by God himself. In fact, he says the same uh, just a bit earlier on in chapter 2 when he asks the question, who is equal to this task? In other words, I've got the job of proclaiming the gospel to people who are perishing and people who are being saved. How can I possibly do it? And he goes on in that verse, as, I've, as you see on the screen, he says, we are like those who are sent from God. There it is again. 
It's not his own idea. It's not a a career path he's chosen for himself. He has been called by God. We are like people sent from God. Again, if you go into the next chapter, he says exactly the same. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So all the way through the letter, he underlines this, knowing God's call. And it's true for every one of us here who've put our faith in Jesus Christ. Every believer in Christ has been called to belong to God and to serve his purposes. And almost without exception, we're rather like Paul in saying, how can I possibly do it? How is it possible that I should carry on this ministry? Um, When you look through the Bible stories, have you noticed how many times people who were called by God to serve him raise a question mark? You know, Moses, I can't speak, Lord. You've chosen the wrong man. Or Peter, one of the greatest evangelists, he says, well, depart from me, Lord. It's not, it's not, I, I can't do it. Isaiah, woe is me. Jeremiah, do you remember in Jeremiah chapter 1, God laid his hand on him, God called him, and he had exactly the same reaction as the people I've just mentioned. He said, but I'm too young. I haven't got enough experience. I haven't grown a beard. How can you be a prophet if you don't have a beard? So all of the stories through the Bible of people on whom God laid his hand, called by God, all had the similar reaction. How can I possibly fulfill the job that God has given to me. And I don't know if you have those moments, I certainly do. In the work I have to do sometimes, I wonder, is it really possible? Can we do what God has asked us to do in our homes or in our workplace? Is it possible? Well, this is something I read on Facebook not long ago, which you might have seen or heard. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God, Paul was a murderer, Gideon was insecure, Miriam was a gossiper, Martha was a warrior, Thomas was a doubter, Sarah was impatient, Elijah was depressed, Moses stuttered, Zacchaeus was short, Abraham was old, Lazarus was dead. (laughs) And um, underneath this little Facebook list of all of those great characters in the scriptures, it says, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. So knowing God's call in our lives, knowing that we belong to God, we put our faith in Jesus, we belong to his family, and we are therefore called by God to serve him in this ministry of reconciliation, just like Paul, this, if it really sinks into our hearts, will enable us to put up with all of the ups and downs, all the difficulties of living the Christian life at this point in the 21st century. Knowing who it is who's called us and what it is that God has called us to do will enable us to face all kinds of challenges just as it did for Paul. Before we move on to the second, just notice one other thing he says in verse 2 which just underlines he's living his life recognising he is serving God himself. He says, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Actually it appears many times in 2 Corinthians where he keeps realising I'm doing this in the eyes of God. I'm doing this 
serving God. I'm doing this because I am accountable to God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So he has this very strong view of living his life in this sense of accountability. We have been speaking in the sight of God. Here it is, we commend ourselves in the sight of God. I find it really challenging when you look at Paul, the difficulties he faced, how he made his decisions, the challenges he had with some of those Christians in Corinth, the big task he had in pioneer church planting and mission, all of the catalogue of sufferings which he faced, you'll find it in 2 Corinthians 11, long list of challenges. Well, all of those things, he said, I do under the watchful eye of the Lord. I'm responsible and accountable to him. That priority shapes my service day by day. So there's the first thing. Since, through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, knowing God's call. Here's the second. Explaining God's word. You look at uh, verse 2, how that goes on. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So next, Paul underlines his determination to be faithful to the message, to the word of God, to the gospel which he'd been given. He wanted to present that truth Clearly and plainly. And this, of course, is the great privilege of every Christian and of all of the churches represented here. Every Christian community has the task of explaining God's word. That's what God calls us to do, is to make that word clear. And you'll see the language he uses. He says, we set forth the truth plainly. And that's really a word for being completely transparent, hiding nothing. I don't know if you've ever watched um, a magician on TV or at a circus. And what they normally do is they roll up their sleeves and say, look, I just want to show you, I'm, I'm hiding nothing. No rabbits, just a few hairs. <laughs> uh, just checking, is it? it's getting late. Um, in other words, he's, he, uh, try, he, he shows his hand. That's the expression that Paul is using here, really. He is showing that he's completely transparent. You know, unlike magicians normally are hiding things. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm being completely open and transparent. I am speaking the truth clearly and plainly. We're holding nothing back. I'm not going to twist this message. I'm going to set forth the truth, he says. I'm not going to embellish this message. I'm not going to try and win popularity. He says, no, it's, it is something I'm going to do to everyone's conscience. It's not a, for a special elite group. It's for everyone. And he underlines, he wants to speak the message plainly. Earlier on in chapter 2, which I've just quoted, he talks about some of his opponents, some of these false preachers and apostles and they he said were peddling the word of God for profit chapter 2 verse 17 unlike so many we do not peddle the word of God for profit on the contrary in Christ we speak before God there it is again we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God in other words it's possible some of those preachers in the first century in Corinth 
were a bit like the occult groups of the day. They were salesmen, if you like, and they were marketing their new religious product. Some people wonder if this idea of peddler is uh, rather like those who watered down wine for sale in the market. So it wasn't the true product, it was watered down, but they didn't care, they were only in it for profit. So these false teachers were representing a message and they sold it, so to speak, uh, for, for, for some, some good income. That was their motivation. But Paul says, oh no, we, we are not giving a message to show what great speakers we are, what great leaders we are, what a wonderful uh, uh, performance we can give. We're not like those false teachers. No, he says, by contrast... We present the truth plainly, clearly, to everyone. If you want to know more about the false message they were proclaiming in chapter 11, he says they're talking about a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. What Paul underlines here is a commitment to a faithful, clear, open declaration of the truth of the gospel. First things first, Paul says explaining God's word. And again, let's just pause. Is it really a priority in our lives and in our churches uh, in this country or around the world? There are all kinds of temptations not to be faithful to this message of the gospel, not to explain God's word openly and clearly. As you probably know, there was a survey uh, a little while ago carried out by the Bible Society and the Evangelical Alliance. It was called Taking the Pulse. And uh, one of the questions in that survey, which was quite revealing, was the question, do secularists, do atheists like Richard Dawkins affect your confidence in the Bible as the word of God? And the interesting result of the survey was that 25% of Christian leaders in the country said, yes, it's affected their confidence in the word of God. 40% of church members said it had. In other words, we are living in an environment, of course, where God's word is under attack. That's true, actually, all around the world. And we know, sadly, that in uh, many, many countries in the Western world, uh, 70% of churchgoers don't read the Bible other than at a church event. They don't read it personally, which is why Roger's encouragement and mine uh, for us to grab good resources and keep working to understand and apply the dynamic of God's word is so important. God's word is powerful. It's able to change and transform lives. And it is something we must pass on. Uh, We'll look at that on Tuesday as we look at the wonderful story in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. So, we urgently need this priority too, don't we? Explaining God's word. Knowing God's call, explaining God's word. Here's a third one. Proclaiming God's son. Verse 5 is perhaps one of the well-known verses in this little section. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, There was an article not long ago in a Christian magazine which suggested that in some parts of Britain and actually the Western world as a whole, there was emerging what they called a consumer attitude towards Christianity. In fact, it was called the McChurch 
mentality. And it suggested that it was pushing Christian leaders to market themselves or market their church in an almost competitive spirit. You know, our church is bigger and better. And sometimes, the article suggested, we who attend churches have developed a consumer mentality. So it's, you know, Burger King one week, it's uh, McDonald's the next. And so people also do the same with churches, a kind of consumerist mentality. Well, in Paul's day, in the first century, there certainly was a problem with a similar kind of personality cult, a drive towards showmanship. Um, in fact, that was one of the reasons why they criticised Paul. He quotes his critics in chapter 10. In person, he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. That's what they thought about Paul. You know, he wasn't the top performer. He didn't have all the rhetoric that they expected amongst first century leaders. His rivals in Corinth were clearly very concerned about image about projecting themselves, about eloquence and so on. And so Paul is not afraid to to confront that very directly with the phrase in this verse 5. We do not preach ourselves. We are not building a platform for our own ministry. He's very direct. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, he says in the next chapter. In fact, he's already said this um, in 1 Corinthians, do you remember when he said, I came to you? How did I come to you? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, not with eloquence, not with superior wisdom, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you remember that verse in 1 Corinthians 2? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here in 2 Corinthians, I do not preach myself but Christ Jesus as Lord. So you put those two things together, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, this was the essential message. Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. That was the priority in Paul's service. Proclaiming God's Son. Now, I'm sure you feel the challenge of this just as I do. We live now in a culture where to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord is an increasing challenge, isn't it? In a world of other religions, in a world of multiple choice, for Christians to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus Christ as the Saviour of the world, is to invite not just mockery but hostility. It is common in our uh, culture in a city like Bradford for people to say, well, it's okay for you, it's okay for you to be a Christian, but don't absolutize it, don't universalize it. Um, in, In my city, we are told this time and time again, you can be Christian, you can be in your church, but don't say that Jesus Christ is the saviour for the whole world. It's okay for you, but don't absolutize Um, Some of you might remember the former English cricket captain, Mike Gatting. He said this, and I think it sums up the attitude we're living in. I believe in a bit of everything. God, the supernatural, ghosts, superstitions, UFOs. I like to keep my options open. And that's the mood of the culture in which we live. So these verses in 2 Corinthians 4 help us to respond with conviction to that basic question. What gives you the right 
to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Saviour. He saw this was the great priority of his life and his ministry, to proclaim God's Son. This whole passage actually is Christocentric. It places Jesus right at the centre. So in terms of priorities in our Christian life and service, we know that we, we are called by God, knowing God's call. We are to explain God's word, and the heart of that is to proclaim God's Son. Well, verse 5 continues with a very small phrase, which I just want to include, uh, just one minute, on the extra phrase, which you'll notice in verse 5. I've called it, serving God's people. There's his fourth priority. The verse continues, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Serving God's people. I've got a friend who has a very simple principle about uh, leadership. And uh, he said, if you talk to some leaders, you can spot them when they come into the room. Because they say, not necessarily in words, but in their manner, they say, here I am. And they're there to be noticed. I won't mention any American president by name, but uh, (laughs) here I am is the kind of... uh, Uh, of typical leadership style that's been adopted by some people. Whereas my friend says, actually, for Christian leadership, it's not, here I am, it's, there you are. It's a very simple idea, but it's a very, very significant one. That when Jesus entered the room, when Jesus met people, the focus was not, here I am, it was, there you are. And so it is in all true Christian service. It is an orientation towards other people. So we don't miss the additional words there in verse 5. Ourselves as your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. This was Paul's identity in the way he served those Corinthians, who, remember, were really critical of him. He was having a tough time with the Corinthians. But he says, I'm your servant. I'm your slave. I've brought you the gospel. All of the suffering I've faced is for your benefit, in fact, he says in chapter, later on in chapter 4. I'm not in this for personal gain. I'm not seeking glory. I'm not trying to boost my ego or build a big platform for Paul's ministry. No, he says, I'm carrying out this ministry as your slave. And so I include it in this little list of first things first, Because it's true for all of us in our Christian service, in the local church, maybe in our family, maybe in the the society where we're working. First and foremost, you see, we're not serving uh, ourselves, we are serving others, and we're serving the Lord Christ in part of this uh, ministry. Our attitude is to share our lives as well as the gospel. I've just had an email actually from a friend who's working uh, with Langham in, uh, in Tanzania. He said he was at a, a conference for uh, pastors and leaders and um, there were two bishops who turned up. And he said the first bishop came dressed as all good bishops should be dressed. And uh, he wanted to sit on the platform and uh, 
he was of course allowed to do so but the second bishop he said you could hardly notice him he welcomed people at the door but then he was running around checking there were enough chairs for people to sit on he was picking out water bottles that had been drunk during the conference he was serving that community now I, I don't overplay that all kinds of reasons uh, for, for different attitudes but the point my friend was making was this spirit of true service towards others is actually a model of Jesus' own calling. And verse 5, I think, is a very interesting combination of authority and of humility. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the priority. That's where the authority of our message lies. And ourselves as your servants. Authority and humility. And finally... The final priority is trusting God's power. Verses 3 to 6, which is really the heart of this little passage. Uh, You can imagine that in response to what Paul is saying, his critics back in Corinth would say to him, well, your preaching is ineffective. If you're not going to use the methods we use, then you'll, you'll see no results. Our techniques will produce a far bigger response, they will say. And it's true enough, preaching the word, explaining God's word, proclaiming God's son, is a very tough job. Paul admitted it. And often it produces very limited results. We sometimes find that all around the world. So Paul responds with the verses that are on the screen there. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in the middle verses here, he gives us two realities. And I mention them as we, as we draw to a close. The first reality is spiritual blindness in the verses I've just read. It's possible that when he talks about the veil and glory, he's making the same contrast he made in chapter 3, where he said the Jewish people have got the scriptures, but there's a veil over their eyes. They can't see the truth unless the Spirit reveals it to them. And then he comes into chapter 4 and says, actually, it's true of all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. There is a veil over our eyes preventing us from seeing the truth unless that is revealed to us by God's Holy Spirit. So Paul now describes what I think we all understand, that there is a power at work in our world which is blinding people's eyes which is stopping their ears. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the sower? The devil comes and takes away the word so that they can't believe and be saved. So there is such a thing as spiritual blindness. Uh, we might not talk much about it in the 21st century, but Jesus and Paul both said there is such a thing as satanic opposition to this message of the gospel. There is an evil force at work which is blinding people's minds, which is closing their ears. And so that's why this ministry of explaining God's word, proclaiming God's son, always has to be accompanied by prayer that God would open the eyes of those who hear that message. You'll see Paul was under no illusions at all. Many people will write off the gospel as completely irrelevant. Uh, We're praying, Margaret and I and my family, for my next-door neighbour, 
um, a lovely, lovely man, but who has a matter of days left actually before he dies of terminal cancer. And uh, we have tr- we have given him books. We've spoken. We've shared the gospel. Others have done the same. But at the moment, it seems this verse applies to him. He's, he he won't see it. So maybe you can pray for him this evening. His name is Preben. We all know people like this. In fact. of the British population right now is like this. Paul is very realistic. The God of this age has blinded the minds of people. So, that's why this second certainty is so important for us, especially in this culture where we're not seeing as many people come to faith as we long. Spiritual illumination, he says in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So as we do our part in proclaiming Christ Jesus as Lord, then we also pray for God's illuminating work by the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of those who hear that message. And it's happened to us. Just as in creation, when God shone his light, so amongst us, God shines his light into our hearts and we understand who Jesus is. He reveals the truth of Jesus. It's possibly this was partly autobiographical for Paul. Do you remember Acts 9, he describes his walk along the Damascus Road and there was this light which blinded him and then eventually he came through that experience to meet Jesus for himself. That's exactly what's going on in these verses. He says, it's in the face of Jesus Christ we come to know who God is. The light that dispels the darkness of my heart is found in the face of Jesus. Verse 4, he's the image of God. He reveals God's glory to us. So, this final priority, trusting God's power, is, I think, One of the really important things at this point in our culture, in this stage of the Christian church, particularly in the Western world, where we're not seeing the growth that they are elsewhere in the world, and that is trusting God's power. It is only by preaching Jesus Christ, it's only by the illuminating power of God's Holy Spirit, that men and women are taken out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, God's Son. So we must pray for God's Holy Spirit to be at work as we trust the power of God's word and we proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What powerful priorities Paul is giving us for our Christian service. The power of God's word by the Holy Spirit to change people's lives. I learned this for the first time when I was a very young Christian. I came to faith at the age of five, in fact. And um, when I was at school, I did my very best to uh, describe the gospel uh, to a very close friend of mine. And um, most days we walked to school together. It was about a mile we had to walk. And uh, this was in our, our, our high school. And he was much brighter than I was. And so every, every dis- discussion, from my point of view, was really very discouraging. Every attempt I had to persuade him that the gospel was true, he dismissed. And this went on all the way through, right through to our sixth form. Well, when we finished school, he still hadn't become a Christian. And uh, we both went to different universities. He went off to Bristol, I went to Exeter. And during the first week 
of my studies, I received a letter from him. Don't know if you remember letters, but um, this this was the day of letters. And uh, he wrote to me and said, Jonathan, uh, I went into Bristol, I went into the Students' Union in the first week, and there was a meeting going on in one of the side rooms, and I went in, and it was a meeting of the Christian Union, and guess what? I became a Christian. And I have to say to you, I often repeat this, that the first thing that came into my mind when I read this was... That is so unfair. (laughs) After all of those months of trying to explain. And then my my father actually said to me, well, do you remember Isaiah when he he spoke about the water cycle? It's Isaiah 55. God's word is like the rain, it falls, it waters the earth, uh, the crops begin to grow, then it evaporates back up as the water cycle. Uh, So is my word the Lord says through Isaiah, it will fulfill the purpose for which I have sent it. And that's the encouragement I had in that discussion with my friend Mike. Nothing is wasted when we proclaim the name of the Lord and we explain the word of the Lord. We have to trust God for those results. We have to trust God's power by the Holy Spirit. But God's uh, word will fulfill its purpose and we hang on to that great truth. Well, there are the five great priorities uh, on the uh, list we've looked at for our Christian service. First things first, knowing God's call. By his mercy, he's called us into his family, he's given us a job to do. That's more important than anything else, knowing it's God whom we serve. It's his watchful eye. We're accountable to him. We belong to him. We want to serve him. Second, we explain God's word clearly, faithfully, openly. Our calling as a priority in our churches is to make that word clear. That's why the Bradford Keswick's operating. Because we believe this to be the powerful word that transforms individuals and families. Proclaiming God's Son. He's right at the heart of that message. Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. And not ourselves, but ourselves as servants of God's people. And all trusting God's power by the Holy Spirit to bring men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. If it's not upside down to end with verse 1 in this little exposition, do you notice what Paul says? Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. He says it twice actually in chapter 4. He says it in in verse 16 as well. We do not lose heart. If there is one of the challenges that we Christians face, it's not necessarily militant Islam. It's not necessarily the new atheists. Sometimes it's plain and simple discouragement. So Paul says, don't give in, don't give up. We do not lose heart. Knowing God's call, explaining God's word, proclaiming God's son, serving God's people, trusting God's power. Let's pray together. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of these verses where Paul explains why he does what he does. Every morning he'd get up facing all kinds of new challenges. And we thank you for this description of the things that really matter for him. 
And we ask that these will be first things first for us as well. Not just as individual believers, but as congregations, as your people in the world. You know the challenges that we face, particularly in a city like Bradford, a city like Oxford, where I'm from, in a culture like ours in the Western world. We'd like to ask, Lord, that you'll give us renewed determination, renewed encouragement this evening to proclaim the name of the Lord, trusting the power of your word and the power of your spirit to open blind eyes and to win men and women for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.